But actually, the fact that it's scratchy and some images are missing in a way that makes it like a home movie. Mm. And it's very moving because the images feel really precious. It's like something's been rescued from the past. Well, it's not in the north. And it's not in the south. In fact, it's bang in the middle. I said, hey, you. Hello and welcome to Mansfield is a town in North Nottinghamshire, um, the podcast about Mansfield, which is a town in North Nottinghamshire. And uh, this episode is presented by me, Robert Shaw, and by my mum. Would you like to say hello, mum? Hello, mum. Oh, very good. Very good. Um, this episode today is about um, films that describe Mansfield life. So the idea is we're going to discuss five films that you could show to somebody um, before they visit Mansfield and say, you know, what you'll discover in Mansfield is a bit like this, or this is what you need to know in order to get the full Mansfield experience. And uh, the reason we're doing this now is because Mansfield is about to have a film festival. And, um, and that's very exciting. So we're celebrating films and films that have something to do with Mansfield. Now, Mum, you've been to the pictures before, haven't you? You went as a little girl, probably. I certainly did. And where did you go to the cinema as a little girl? I went to Blidworth Cinema. We, had, we had a cinema then. Did you? And what did you go and see? Old Mother Riley. Good. And what sort of films? I mean, do you still like Old Mother Riley now? Is that the sort of thing you want to watch? Or well, do you like yes, other because things? I understand how she feels now. <laughs> but what sort of films do you like now, though? I like murders. You do like murders. Yes, I do. Yeah. I like gore. Yeah. I like blood. I like murders. Well, that's nice, isn't it? That's good. Anyway, today in the programme, I'm not sure that we've got many films that have a lot of murders in them, but certainly high passions and, and, and you know, very strong emotions. And I'm going to be discussing those in a moment with um, a film critic who is very... Uh, uh, very kindly agreed to speak to us, and that is Muriel Zaga, and uh, she will be talking us through some great Mansfield-related films. So here we go. What do you think about that, Mum? Is that exciting? I find that wonderful. Mansfield is a town in North Nottinghamshire. Ba 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 ba. So Muriel. Thank you so much for joining us today, Muriel Zaga, film critic. Thank you for inviting me. Joining us on the eve of Mansfield's first ever, I think, film festival. And uh, we're not talking about uh, things that are in the film festival, because actually at the time that we're talking, they haven't announced what's in it either. Um, what we're going to do instead is to construct a history of Mansfield and a sort of mythological and philosophical portrait of the town through time via five films that are sort of about Mansfield. So the idea is basically we are going to um, give a portrait of Mansfield either for people who live in Mansfield or for the people who are going to visit Mansfield through 
um, films. It's actually four films in a TV documentary. Um, if anybody listening to this uh, doesn't like the choices, that's my fault. I chose them, no, not Muriel. Um, so blame me. Um, but it's a, an absolutely amazing selection that have at the heart of them Mansfield, even though I'm not sure any of them mentions Mansfield <laughs> directly. But you will see how closely related they all are to Mansfield. So we begin, inevitably, we begin with Robin Hood. Now, of course, there are many films we could have uh, talked about for Robin Hood. The one um, we have selected is the one from 2010 uh, with uh, local lad Russell Crowe <laughs> in the um, title role. And the reason for this is that um, it claimed to be the most historically accurate of all of the Robin Hood movies. So it's set in around 1199, um, 12th, 13th century, and uh, it's the most historically accurate. Um, you know, what do you say to that? So that, I was very intrigued by this uh, because uh, I want to know the real story of Robin Hood. And the thing about Robin Hood, of course, is he's not really a historical figure. I mean, that's a whole other podcast, probably, but he's he's a legendary figure. So already there's a bit of tension there, you know. But uh, Ridley Scott, the director of the film, said very firmly, "This is going to be this is going to set the Robin Hood stories to write to, to rights. It's going to be the most historically accurate take on Robin Hood." So I was expecting a lot of hyper-local history, even though this is a big Hollywood blockbuster. And in fact, initially, one of the first versions of the films was going to be called, not Mansfield, but Nottingham. Ooh. So it was, how exciting. So this, this didn't fly with Ridley Scott. He had the treatment rewritten. And in the end, what you have is more of an action movie with lots of big stars. So uh, Russell Crowe as Robin Hood, as a kind of uh, the grizzled Robin Hood. And then uh, Kate Blanchett as um, uh, Lady Marian. She's a married woman. She's a widow in the film. And from the beginning, I was disappointed because King Richard dies almost immediately. And one of the things we like is waiting for the return of King Richard Lionheart. But of course, he's already, in this film, he's already dead from the beginning. And what this is really, and this is where it does look at Robin Hood as a kind of legendary figure, is Batman is to Gotham City as Robin Hood is to Nottingham Mansfield. He is your friendly neighborhood outlaw. And you know how in Batman stories, Superman stories, you get an origin story that tells you how this hero became a superhero. Indeed. So this is what this film does, because actually we only get to Sherwood Forest at the very end. And this is where his life as an outlaw begins. So what we get in in the interim, we get a lot of battle scenes, we get um, a lot of archery. Uh, so that is, but in, in a battle context rather than banditry context. And then uh, it's a complicated story about how this archer, this anonymous archer, who's not a knight, um, takes on somebody else's identity. So the name uh, Robert Loxley is stolen, really, from somebody else. And uh, he he finds himself in the heart of hist big, big history, not local Mansfield uh, history, but big English history. He's carrying the crown back to the king. He uh, His father has written a sort of proto magna carta a sort of declaration of rights for free uh, britons and he uh, is instrumental in defeating the french and so all of that so instead of being your local 
friendly neighborhood outlaw, he is a sort of incarnation of England, like a figure of nationhood. So it's much, much bigger history. Yeah, because I mean, I, I want to say, you know, in terms of Robin as a, a local figure, so, you know, I grew up in Mansfield um, with Thieves Wood nearby. My grandmother is buried in the same cemetery as uh, Will Scarlet. Um, and uh, Mansfield, of course, was the commercial heart of Sherwood Forest. So uh, Robin, um, um, the outlaw in, in Sherwood Forest, and, and Mansfield was the place where he probably went to do his shopping, in disguise, usually, I think. <laughs> um, there are some photographs that show him um, popping in and out of the uh, the Four Seasons, but... <laughs> so, yeah. so this is, you don't get that in this film. But you do get Russell Crowe as Robin Hood, and it may be, although personally my favourite Robin Hood in film is Errol Flynn. I think I probably am... I'm not alone, uh, but Russell Crowe has perhaps something more uh, relatable in terms of what men are like in Mansfield, in that he is more solidly built, he is more serious, perhaps a little grim at times. He's also quite mouthy, and he speaks, you know, as he finds. And so maybe there, un unwittingly, I suspect, they've got closer to Robin Hood as a Mansfield uh, lad. And what accent does he do? <laughs> so, well, famously, he uh, he tried to do uh, an English accent and then he was widely derided for sounding, well, like a mixture of Irish and Australian and just not really getting it right. So it's not that easy. No. And, um, I mean, my favourite, Robin, I have to say, is the Red Fox in the uh, Disney animation. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, otherwise Errol Flynn. Um, so thing about Robin, I want to introduce a big theme in all of these films that we're going to discuss is the idea of um, Mansfield and East Midland individualism. Because Robin is somebody who steals from the rich to give to the poor, so he's kind of a socialist. But at the same time, he's also really an individualist. He likes to live away from society beyond the constraints of, oh, it's a bad society, but he's beyond that. And I wonder whether this film captures that element much. Maybe not so much because it is, as you say, it's an origin story, so it's only at the end that he actually ends up in the forest. Yes, although you could say throughout the film he is an outsider because he's um, not a knight, he's an ordinary soldier uh, who has to prove himself in order to be deserving of the fair Lady Marion, uh, because, I mean, we're led to understand that all the, for the complicated reasons he has to pretend to be her dead husband. Uh, and so they have to pretend to be man and wife. So, you know, there's room for a lot of romantic tension there. But he does prove himself to her. He proves himself worthy of being a knight. I mean, in a way, it's about an outsider trying to become an insider. But just to be know. clear, he's not, he's not trying to be the dead husband, is he? I mean, he's actually trying to be alive. <laughs> he's trying to be that the alive. He's still alive. Yes, the idea is the husband did not die and he uh, assumes his identity in order to allow her to keep the estate. So it's a it's a very generous gesture. And does he have the, the body of the old husband? And is he sort of pulling strings and making him move in that way? Is that how it works or not? No, 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 no. No, not like that. Okay. What okay. he does have is the crown, which the dead husband was carrying from Richard to King John. So he hands it over and uh, it becomes uh, the Robin Hood's uh, 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 journey to take the crown back to the, the, uh, the evil new king. 
Excellent. Okay, well, that's uh, one film down. Um, we're going to move forward in time now, quite swiftly. So that was eleven ninety nine. Sounds like a cut price offering, doesn't it? I mean, almost twelve hundred. That's what I mean. Uh, where that one begins. The next one is set in the early twentieth century, and this one is Women in Love. Um, this is the nineteen sixty nine version of the film, uh, which won Mansfield's only Oscar so far um, for Glenda Jackson. Um, and uh, it's the D.H. Lawrence uh, novel. Um, it's got some naked wrestling in it. It's very good. Now, um, it's sort of about Mansfield. D.H. Uh, Lawrence, of course, grew up in a mining community. Um, he was also very attached to the idea of the landscape that was essentially the landscape of... Um, of really Robin Hood, actually. And he was... The Greenwood. ...dismayed, exactly, by what happened um, to the area in the late 19th century with the opening of the mines. And so the only thing I think that he ever really said about Mansfield was he to describe it as that once romantic and now utterly disheartening colliery town. So it's this sort of feeling for nature that he had, which, you know, and again, the landscape around Mansfield is spectacular. Um... And uh, that, you know, it was it was made um, uh, it was made a bit grim by the opening of the mine. So he didn't dislike the Mansfield of the mining age, but he loved the Mansfield and surrounding area of the days of Robin Hood. So that's basically the connection with Robin Hood. So, um, right. Anyway, is this a good film? Is this worth watching? It's a beautiful film. It's really worth watching. So, yes, it's an adaptation of a fine classic novel. Uh, it's basically about, it's set, as you said, uh, after the First World War. So, um, in, a, in a small uh, mining uh, town. And uh, the characters are two sisters and two uh, male best friends. So the sisters are respectively Ursula and uh, Gudrun. They are a teacher, school teacher and an artist, a sculptress. And the two men are a school inspector and um, the son of the owner of a colliery. So the mining he industry mine, is, is, is central to the story. And that character, who's called Gerald, the, the son of the owner, is uh, very driven, uh, industrialist. He wants to turn the colliery around. He wants to make it more productive. He wants to make the worker, workers work harder. Uh, so that's where the mine and he's also completely alienated and a very uh, cold and uh, tormented character so it's not really agreeing with him very well in terms of his emotional well-being or mental health shall we say so it's really a story about love and uh, it's about women in love it's also about uh, men in love and about the love between men and maybe we'll come back to that a little later. But it's really about what is love, how, what does it mean to be in love? And there's a, a lot of tension between, um, uh, desire to be free, to be in love and be free. And that's often those scenes happen in nature, in very verdant landscapes, beautifully lush landscapes where people take all their clothes off and frolic naked with one another. There's that. Uh, and then there's, there are also... Uh, there's a great scene with a cow, isn't there? <laughs> lots of cows. Yeah. It's a whole herd of cows where Glenda Jackson, who is a, a, a very sort of um, domineering young woman, a very uh, assertive young woman for the times, especially, um, 
is confronted with a herd of uh, what are they? That they're the Highland cattle, the ones with the fringes, you know, the very hairy ones. And she and they're quite scary. They have big horns and you know cur- those curly horns. And she scares them away by performing a sort of modernist Isadora Duncan style dance and running at them and screaming. So there's that. There's also a lot of railway presence. We see uh, lots of steam trains. There's a beautiful scene where um, we see uh, miners coming out of the colliery and they're all uh, covered in coal dust. And then uh, there's a bridge above the colliery, a railway bridge, and then this steam train is kind of chugging along so with all, all the smoke and steam. And then uh, carving a path between the miners, we see a cream-coloured Rolls-Royce with red leather interior, which is the owner's car in which the Gerald character, played by Oliver Reed, and his father are sitting, and they're driving through, and all the miners are taking their caps off to them, and so on. So it does. Uh, th- th- there is a strong element of what the, the the kind of social inequalities that are that are there, especially in the wake of the Great War. Um, but it's it's beautiful. It's very colourful. I mean, you might say it's not incredibly realistic. You know, the two sisters in the first scene where we see them come out of their ha- house wearing incredibly colourful fashions that look more Carnaby Street than Mansfield or Derbyshire. Because this is shot mainly in Derbyshire. Uh, but it doesn't really matter. The idea is to create an emotional landscape. Well, Lawrence is not um, a realistic novelist in any case and you know he he brings in the themes of sort of well again it's about individualism and collectivism larger society and also uh, how to be an individual while being in love and while being and married finding the right yeah. balance between people so so i mean in fairness i think the, the the film is quite true to lawrence in that way um so, I mean, Glenda Jackson definitely deserved her Oscar for the sort of dancing with the, the cows or bulls or whatever <laughs> they are. Um, she also does this amazing sculpture of um, Oliver Reed at one point, which is a bit like, you know, in the, um, in the video for Hello by Lionel Richie. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like it's that. About, it's, it's as though she can't actually see what she's doing. That would be a good explanation. Yeah. But in fact, she is a sort of modernist sculptress. That's why he looks so odd. But she captures him very well. Because, I mean, he's, he, is, he is brilliant, isn't he? I mean, Oscar, Wi- um, Oscar Wilde. It's not Oscar Wilde, <laughs> is it? On. No. Um, uh, um, the uh, other performers in the film are also excellent. So it's Alan Bates who plays Birkin. So Alan Bates is actually from Derby. So of the whole cast, he's the one who is a sort of local boy. And for him, sh- shooting this movie was a, a way of returning to Derby because you know, he'd left and gone to RADA in London and was not didn't particularly identify with the place as an actor. But being in the film allowed him to go back. And he does look right, doesn't he? And that he looks quite a lot like D.H. Lawrence in the film. He does. And that's probably why... Especially when he takes his trousers off. <laughs> Which he does repeatedly. And so I, I don't know, Robert, if you wanted to talk about the contentious scene in the movie. This movie is famous primarily because of its nude male wrestling scene, isn't it? There's a brilliant nude male wrestling scene. Which, which is... is in the novel. So oh, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, it was Lawrence's idea. And uh, this scene is meant to... So this is a scene where they are in Gerald's big house uh, and in this uh, beautiful sort of large room with a big fireplace. It's all lit by fire. And uh, 
Birkin, the, the Ellen Bates character, who is the one who believes in marriage and love with a woman, but also tre treasures his friendship with Gerald, the other character, and thinks that closeness between men is as important as closeness with a woman. And he challenges him to a wrestling contest, sort of out of the blue. You know, they're sitting there in their evening dress and smoking cigars or the equivalent thereof. And then suddenly he says, you know, do you want to maybe wrestle? And he doesn't put it quite like that. So they, they take all their clothes off. So remember the film was made, what is it? 69. Nine. Yeah. So quite early on, really. And it's full frontal male nudity twice. So there are two actors. And also in motion, because they do actually wrestle. And it goes Ooh. on for a long time. It's Oliver Reed is flapping about. Yeah, it's several minutes of yeah. that. So uh, this did cause a little bit of worry in terms of the board of censorship. They looked at the scene carefully and they thought, should we leave that in? And then they left it in because they thought, actually, it's beautifully done and it is in integral to the story. But in South Africa, the scene was cut. And so uh, hilariously what happened is... Uh, at the beginning of the scene, they say, let's wrestle. And then uh, Gerald, I think, locks the door because they're going to take their clothes off. So they don't want to be disturbed. So you see him locking the door. Then they wrestle. And then at the end, they are both lying on the intricate carpet covered in sweat. <laughs> so in the South African cut, you, have, you go straight from Gerald locking the door to the two men naked, visibly naked, lying on the carpet covered in sweat. And you don't get the wrestling scene in between. So then you have to draw your own conclusions you don't, you don't even as get, to what they've been doing. You don't even get wrestling <laughs> as metaphor, do you? Yeah, exactly. It's just one of those things about so, how censorship can backfire. Interestingly, the uh, I mean, that theme of uh, friendship between men is very definitely in the D.H. Lawrence novel. Um, but the script for the film was written by Larry Kramer, um, who would go on to uh, be quite an important figure in America during the AIDS crisis, and he wrote a play called The Normal Heart, and I think he was one of the founders of ACT UP as well. Um, and he possibly, I mean, he certainly sees something in the material there that he really brings further forward even than is in the novel. I think that's true later on in, in I think in so. I think, I think certainly he um, turns certain things inside out that would have been, you know, that would have remained implicit. He makes them more explicit, not completely explicit, but more explicit. Whether uh, this is a, a queer movie or a movie about homosexuality, I'm not sure that we can go quite so far as that. Um, no. But uh, although, you know, the part, I mean, the part was offered, the part of uh, Gerald played by Oliver Reed, who's a totally fearless performer, of course, was offered to other people. Well, that's um, been Oscar Wilde. <laughs> and other performers, I mean, Michael Caine, for example, was approached and he said, I'm not quite sure that I'll be comfortable doing a scene naked with another actor. It was quite a lot mm. to ask of a, a mainstream actor at the time. Of course, now, I mean, I suppose what's very striking now is, is how beautiful and restrained the film is when it was perceived as such a, you know, a transgressive movie at the time. And I, I mean, I do think it is a, it's very definitely a candidate for being the greatest film about and um, set in Mansfield that isn't really quite about Mansfield or set in Mansfield, but in a way it's very much about the idea of Mansfield. But actually it is a brilliant film and everybody should watch it. Um, that's Ken Russell's original version of Women in Love. Glenda Jackson wins an Oscar for it. Um, it's brilliant. Right. So that's set in the early 20th century, around the end of the 
First World War. The next film we're going to do is called Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. This was written by um, a novelist, Alan Silito, um, who is from Nottingham. Now, Nottingham is not Mansfield. It's a suburb of Mansfield. Yes. And um, it's the most, uh, it's a very Mansfield film. At the same time, it's also quite a French film, isn't it? Because <laughs> because it's actually uh, one of the uh, great films. Uh, it was made in 1960 or released in 1960. That was at the heart of the British Nouvelle Vague. And it has a very jazzy score written by or performed by and written by uh, Johnny Danquith, uh, my father's uh, beloved um, jazzer. And... Um, and it's uh, this is this one isn't set in the mines. Um, it uh, it has its heart a very East Midland figure, um, a, another great individualist. So I'm going to use that word again. And his name is Arthur Seaton, or you could pronounce it Satan if you want to. <laughs> um, he works in the uh, Raleigh factory in Nottingham, so bicycles, that kind of thing. There's an amazing scene at Goose Fair. Um, um, how does it uh, so he's an individualist who sort of revels against everything you know whatever you say i am that's what i'm not that kind of thing of course um, then used by a band from sheffield i believe for yeah so he's you know, he's a young man mm, uh, and you're played quite by right albert finney. played by albert, albert finney in his debut i think it was it was this was certainly oh, that was they launched album, him yeah. mm. and uh, he has uh, what they call presence i think oh, really he's i mean he's absolutely yeah. outrageous like you know, it's a bit, bit like seeing Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta for the first time, and you think, who is that? It's that sort of thing. So he plays this young working class lad who works in a factory and who um, lives for the weekend and uh, is certainly on the inside and sometimes also on the outside, especially when he's drunk, quite an imp impudent, snarling, rebellious character, which is probably why, as a as a, a sort of mythical figure, he's often referenced in pop music, various bands, various uh, album titles, song titles. You know, there are allusions to to him. So he's left a, a deep trace. So he, uh, the character, is inspired by Alan Silito, the the man who wrote the novel that was that he then adapted. He wrote the script, I think, for this movie by Carol Rice by his own experiences. Alan Silito left school at fourteen. He went to work in factories. So he had exactly that experience. So it's about somebody who. Uh, for whom having a job, that generation, where having a, a job, a good job with good wages, is not enough. That perhaps the previous generation who went through the Depression are more grateful for that, are more grateful for a stable job, steady wages. He, the Arthur Seaton character, the Albert Finney character, uh, really all he wants, he says, uh, all, I'm, all I want is to have a good time and the rest is propaganda. So interestingly, he doesn't display any signs of class, solidarity or consciousness or political awareness or interest in politics or in the unions or any of that sort of thing. So although you see him in the factory a lot, he's always thinking about something else. And for him, real life is not in the factory. Real life is in the pub and when he's with a woman. So he's having an affair with a married woman very naughty and then you also see him in the pub and there is a, a really tremendous pub scene where he engages in a drinking contest with a what is he like um, a sailor perhaps uh, and uh, I don't know how much of it is acting or how much of it is actually imbibing the the pints that he's shown to be drinking but by the end of the scene the Albert Finney character although he's still standing and he wins the contest like the young buck that he is he looks completely blotto. <laughs> 
So it does capture something perhaps about the drinking culture in that part of the world, which has not really changed very much. So uh, British New Wave movie, it's, uh, you know, when in the Women in Love film, uh, there are minors sort of in the background, but the main characters are uh, ruling class characters or middle class characters. Here, the main figure is a working class character and all the characters are working class. And those films of the early 60s to the mid 60s were the first, they were really revolutionary because it was the first time that uh, films were made seriously about working class people and their lives and not in a condescending manner, not as comedy, just really telling telling it like it is. Yeah, I mean, it is, a again, it is a really tremendous it's film. It's an amazing film. And uh, in a way, he's the great individualist. He ought to run away to Sherwood Forest at the end and join Robin or so he finds his maid Marion. He finds mm. a lovely young woman who... Um, sort of nails him down good and proper, or at least attempts to. And uh, at the end, so there is, you know, there are difficulties because he's still entangled with this other lady, the married lady who uh, he's having an affair with. But that and she's up the junction. She is. She is. So there are some some rather unflinching scenes where she has to d try and uh, she's considering trying to get rid of the pregnancy, which of course at the time was uh, illegal. And and this brings on brings in a series of scenes with um, Arthur's aunt, who's one of those strong matriarchs who I would associate with the Midlands, with Mansfield. I think I've met quite a lot of ladies a bit like that, very wise women uh, who are not easily um, intimidated. And, and she's who... played by this really amazing called Hilda Baker, who is, uh, yeah. Yes, so she's wonderful. So lots of matriarchs. And in fact, uh, I would say in terms of uh, the Arthur Seaton character being a bit of a Robin Hood figure or a rebel who might sort of get away at the end, he doesn't really get away. He he decides to get married. Um, Semi decides to get married or agrees to get married to this lovely young woman who, although she seems... Um, uh, young and you know uh, relatively uh, innocent is a matriarch in the making and is uh, is entirely prepared to rule his life for him so it's not entirely an escape although uh he he retains his independence and at the end of the film uh, we see them uh it's supposed to be up in the hills overlooking nottingham in fact i think it was shot in wembley but the, the effect is the same and the they're looking at a new estate which is very similar to some of the estates around uh, mansfield and and nottingham and she's talking uh, happily about moving into one of the new homes and having a bathroom you know all those exciting things and he uh, throws a stone at the billboard the uh, sort of promoter's uh, billboard and when she confronts him about this he says i'm going to be throwing a lot more so even though he's agreeing to marry he retains this rebellious character he will always be a rebel and maybe that does capture something of that individualist uh defiance now it's obviously rooted in reality because his name is arthur and uh, all men in my family uh, except for me were called arthur um Almost everybody called Arthur, apart from my great-grandfather, whose name is Gershon. Um, but apart from that, they're all Arthur. Um, so so that really does root it for me. Um, so we've run then from Robin Hood through D.H. Lawrence up into the 1960s. And uh, the word rebel has come up quite a lot. Individualists. Um, also uh, French Nouvelle Vague. 
somewhat improbably. Now we're going to go to the sort of present, but also deep prehistory, because it's another Ken Russell movie. So he he's the director of the first um, Women in Love movie. He made a film in 1988 called The Lair of the White Worm. Now, this is based on a novel by Bram Stoker, who is the author of uh, Dracula. And uh, Bram Stoker wrote this, uh, I mean, it, it was a, about um, East Midland um, mythology and folklore. And uh, it, it is a very remarkable um, film. And I would say, again, it is rooted in, you know, something you will find around Mansfield in that, um, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't immediately think of Mansfield and prehistory and mythology. But of course, Cresswell Crags is very close by. And there you can, I quote, walk in the footsteps of early humans and woolly mammoths and uh, some of the finest examples of uh, Ice Age rock art, although it's quite hard to make any of them out, but they are there. And uh, so it is one of the most prehistoric sites in the East Midlands, the UK, Europe, the world, the galaxy, mm. all the things I used to write in the front of all the books I had. Um, and is it a great film? Tell us something about it. It's got that famous Midlander, of course, Hugh Grant. In it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, He's a Mansfield man. Just as we were getting closer to real life and real people mm. with Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, we go back to something... Uh, very strange. So it's what's known as a cult movie. So I think that already tells you a little bit. So it's it's a film that people will either find very silly or very funny. And it's both, really. It is a comedy. I think Ken Russell intended it as a comedy. Um, so in terms of the, the sort of the, the ancient... Uh, sort of uh, history uh, at, the, at the the legends, the myths that uh, inspired the story... Um, Ken Russell was delighted to find the story because he thought, uh, he said, you know, for once we don't have to go to Transylvania, it's just up the road, you know. So uh, it's it's local history in the sense that um, there is this ancient evil lurking in the caves and possibly Cresswell Crags will give you some of the same frisson if you went there late at night. I'm sure that sometimes you'd hear strange rustlings and, you know, suggestive of a, a presence. So what the film is about is, yes, Hugh Grant is there. He's very young. He obviously wasn't quite sure what he was doing making this film. You can see it in his face at times. Hugh Grant is there and also Peter Capaldi, who went on to be Doctor Who and then be in the thick of it. You know the Very sweary. Yes. So in this, he doesn't swear very much. And uh, the Hugh Grant character is the young sort of lord of the manor and... Uh, Nearby, in another house, lives uh, a mysterious woman played by Amanda Donohoe, very glamorous, uh, sexy woman. And this woman is no ordinary uh, local woman. She is, in fact, an ancient priestess of the cult of an ancient sort of dragon snake god who may or may not be lurking at the bottom of a cave called Thor's Caves, I think, in the movie, which and are... spoiler alert, the... it is lurking. You <laughs> say may or may there. not, but actually it's no, there. it's totally lurking there. And if anyone's seen The Wicker Man, which is another folk horror uh, movie, uh, also a cult movie, there's, there's certainly attempts at performing human sacrifice in this film as well. So it's got human sacrifice, it's got uh, amazing psychedelic visions people experience when they are bitten by the Amanda Donohoe character, but she develops fangs at various points in the film. 
um, she she spits venom at people. The venom will make them hallucinate. Um, there's a scene where the Peter Capaldi character tries to charm the big serpent with bagpipes. Uh, it's insane, and the acting is broadly really terrible. But that that's well, it's broad, isn't it? It's, it's broadly broad. broad. Lots know. of pretty girls screaming in terror. Uh, or saying their lines without, well, giving the impression that they're seeing them for the first time on on a, a sign that somebody's holding up. But that is part of the joy and part of the nightmarish atmosphere. And I've been to Cresswell Crags, actually, and I thought it was very atmospheric. And it's the film is a way of accessing that. It's, it's like, uh, you know, wondering about the Loch Ness Monster when you go to Loch Ness. Well, if you go to Mansfield, you go to Cresswell Crags, you can think about the White Worm. Exactly. And, you know, the idea of, of discussing these films is stand in the middle of Mansfield and think of all of these films going on here or nearby. Simultaneously. Simultaneously, <laughs> even better. Yeah. And, and that actually they inform how you should feel in Mansfield. It is all of these things have come from, from Mansfield. All of these uh, kind of strains of feeling and of, of seeing the world and philosophy and mythology they're all rooted in Mansfield. And, you know, it's very beautiful. And uh, Lair of the White Worm is a, is a great, great party movie. I would say there's an amazing scene with a Boy Scout. Uh, he's dispatched uh, by Amanda Donahoe. Um, what a way to go, though. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, a, a, a great film. I, I do love that film very much. Um, finally, then, we've got to our fifth choice. Now, this, now I should say... Um, we could have had as the fifth choice uh, a recent film called Red to Blue by Jay Martin, a Mansfield Scorsese. Um, and that is a really good um, short film. However, we've already discussed it on the podcast before, so I'm not going to put that in, but it is it is really, really good. And Jay pointed out to me the existence of this documentary that is on, uh, you can find it on YouTube, and it's about Clipston in 1971-72, the pit Clipston. It's called Strike Village. And so it was made as a documentary and uh, the uh, the way it's been transferred um, to YouTube is it's a bit rough and ready. That's a brilliant thing that it's been transferred. And so it tells the um, story uh, as a documentary um, about what happens to Clipston uh, during the strike of 1971, 72. Uh, you can it it tells you already what's in that TV series called Sherwood that was on um last year as well, about what happens to communities when um, uh, some take action and some don't. Um, so again, it's about individuals, rebels and collectives. And who are the rebels, actually? Is it the the uh, the miners? Is it the one who decides not to do it? Um, so there are lots of Arthur Seaton figures, actually, in this movie again. So you can see that line going through from Robin Hood. Um, and it is brilliant and uh, put a link in the show notes and I do recommend people to to look at it and put up with the uh, the not brilliant quality of uh, all of the images really really good um, so Mansfield as we know the one thing we know about Mansfield is that it's a former mining town so this is about Clipston Colliery and um, what did you make of it it's very gripping, isn't it? I mean, it's a really well-made documentary in that it's obviously very beautifully put together, edited very carefully, but it feels like drama. 
you feel like you're watching a drama unfold. It's you, you want to know what's going to happen next. And especially in my case, where actually I didn't know what the outcome of the strike had been or how it was going to pan out. I really wanted to see uh, how it was going to end. And there's a twist as well at the end. Uh, the, I was very struck by the, the, as you say, the articulacy of everyone, the articulateness of everyone who speaks and the, um, the restraint and the thoughtfulness of everyone who speaks. And I know they're being filmed. They know they're going to be on camera. But nevertheless, all these people are going through a serious crisis in their professional and personal lives, you know, and they still are able to uh, think carefully about how they feel and what it all means and put it in terms that are uh, universally intelligible. So it doesn't feel like a, a, ooh, a little local dispute or something that you, wouldn't make any sense to you if you didn't come from mining stock. I think anyone who has given a moment's thought to working, family, community, all those big things will be able to relate to it. The quality of the images isn't brilliant. You're right on the YouTube. Maybe this is something that one day will be restored and we'll be able to see in a better copy. But actually the fact that it's scratchy and some images are missing in a way that makes it like a home movie. Mm. And it's very moving because the images feel really precious. It's like something's been rescued from the past and it is a period piece you know on a less serious note it's amazing to see so many sideburns oh, yeah. all the men in the film have the most amazing long hair and sideburns and uh, the sort of facial hair you don't really see nowadays which was very um, common in the 70s and the way you see also the way women dressed at the time the way their kitchens looked you know all of that is is really really interesting um, so it's about the union, about the the National Union of Mine Workers, and they're uh, striking for better pay. Well, not just better pay in view of the fact that mining was so dangerous and and uh, and bad for you. You know, there were so many health complications and so on, and such uncomfortable work. But also in in order to bring uh, the miners' wages um, to the same level as what the increases that other industrial workers received yeah. and there, there was by then a quite a, a strong discrepancy so where the miners had been although again working hard and in very difficult conditions and sometimes with their lives shortened as a result uh, often in fact had enjoyed quite good living conditions very high wages compared to other industrial workers then at that time the situation had become reversed and it didn't seem fair so that's why they they were striking and so you see, it's really interesting. It's about uh, people who've perhaps never been on strike before. They talk about the 1926 strike, and some of the older people at the mine remember that. But most of the people we see, the the, the, the main figures, so the, the union leader, the pit um, manager, they're comparatively young men, and they are learning as they go how to strike, how to manage a strike, how to react to a strike, how to negotiate. So there's quite a, there's a good scene where you, you see a lot of the miners are going to um, London to take part in a bigger demonstration. And the, the union leader, who is learning how to be a union leader, really has his megaphone with him. So he's, he's taking ownership of his leadership. So all of that is really, really well done. And the solidarity of the 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 men on the picket line, the women who bring them soup, the people who provide shelter for them, all of that is very moving. But then just as you relax towards the end because they 
there is, as you say, a happier ending than with maybe other strikes, it becomes apparent that there was one person in the uh, Curiery who did not strike, someone who was not unionized and who did not strike and who, in fact, continued to work all the way through the strike and to get his wages. And so there's tremendous anger at this. And then we get to see this man interviewed. And he says something that you could imagine Arthur Seaton saying. He says, essentially, I'm not unionized. I don't have to do what the union says. I needed to look after my family. I have children. I have a wife. And for me, it made sense to continue to work. And I'm not sorry. And that kind of defiance, I think from... Some of the other things I know about later strikes, especially in Mansfield, seems to me very expressive of the local temperament, that there is that solidarity uh, of the, the unionized miners who are pursuing the same goal and are able to persuade other workers to join them. You know, you do see that in action. But there are also people who don't go along with it and are completely unint unintimidated by this groupthink. And as you say, there's the Arthur Seaton mentality. Um, of course, one thing that's really starkly there, and of course, you can still visit the site of um, Clipston Colliery, um, and uh, you know, sort of, it still has its place in the landscape. Um, is the way that the people who work there all live around it, mm. and there's kind of no way out. It's not as though you can go into work and then, oh, if it's not going so well, well, you know, you go after your life somewhere else afterwards you remain there and that is the problem for this one person the storekeeper who um doesn't go on strike and who is ultimately i'm going to give away the ending um is expelled oh. essentially or has to leave the community because it's a reclue it's a it's very you know, close-knit and a cannot, bit claustrophobic really you can't really be an it. outsider there. and of course that is the story that's in um the tv serial um sherwood as well as to why some kinds of communities having been through uh, very divisive moments like that find it hard to heal within that generation because actually nobody moves or... And everybody you know, remembers. People, and people mm. remember. Um, and as you say, they, they talk a lot about the general strike, which is over 40 years before. And my goodness, it seems like a very... <laughs> it's you know, very it's the vivid. Elbow of all of yes. Them. And um, so you think, yeah, um, the chances of moving on within a couple of years, not great. Um, but it is really worth watching, as are all of the amazing um, works on this list. Uh, I mean, there are other Robin Hood movies that are worth watching. Um, I the one say. with the fox. The one with the fox, especially, and the one with Errol Flynn. Um, and um, so anyway, um, Muriel, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this. That has been then a portrait of... Mansfield as a kind of quintessence of the East Midlands. That's really what we're doing here. Um, captured on the silver screen and also on a, something that's been transferred to YouTube um, very preciously. Um, and that's uh, a portrait of, of Mansfield since the um, the 12th century. There we go. Well, actually earlier because of earlier, the prehistory of the Lair of the Prehistory and the ancient serpents. Exactly. So actually throughout time and, <laughs> and before time. So there we go. Thank you so much for joining us today and um i'm gonna go and ask my mother what she thinks about that now mansfield is a town in north nottinghamshire
So thank you once again there to our guest, Muriel Zaga. And I should say that um, that was recorded just before the death of Glenda Jackson was announced. Um, if you do get a chance to see Women in Love with Glenda Jackson um, in it, it's absolutely terrific and she is wonderful in it. Mum, do you have a favourite film from the ones we discussed there? Was it Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, I think you said? Yes, it was. And why is that? Because it's typical this area. Typical Nottinghamshire. And uh, and I liked it. It was... Um, I watched it with your dad and it was good. And uh, who liked it more, you or dad? Maybe dad. Because I think he was... Um, a bit more into film, a bit more realistic than I am. Um, perhaps, uh, yeah, perhaps he did, but but I liked it. Cause I thought, I thought it was typical of our area. Yeah, well, I think it was good. There we go. Well, we love that, don't we? Good. Yeah. Right. So it's time to say uh, bye bye once more. We're going to end the podcast at this point, but you have to sing. The theme tune first, one, as you always do. Do you remember how it goes? It goes... Nottingham is a town, Mansfield is a town, in North Nottinghamshire. Mansfield is a town, where I live. Mansfield is a town, in North Nottinghamshire. Mansfield is a town, that I love. 